So what does it mean to be a Christian? I, um, I've been teaching this for several weeks, and I was going to end it a couple of weeks ago, but I just keep feeling like we need to go on. I think today and next week might be it, but i um, not real sure. But what it means to be Christian. You know, it's one thing you ask people inside the church, what does it mean to be Christian? Because they've all been taught the Bible and they all kind of know the right answers. But when you ask people that are unchurched or outside the church, what does it mean to be Christian? Uh, we know this, we've read things, we've heard things, that their number one thing they say is, well, to be Christian means you're judgmental. I mean, ask people outside the church. It's number one adjective used to describe Christians is you're judgmental. And then the second thing that they say how else would you describe Christians? They say, well, you're hypocritical. It means you say one thing and do another. You don't really live what you say. That's what the unchurched says about the church. But this last one that I'm going to say is, is one that kind of took me by surprise. It said that, um, uh, what, what, do you, what do you think it means to be Christian? They said, well, you're not a very good friend. You're not good at friendship. I thought, that's, that's, that's painful. What do they mean that we're not good at friendship? And when they were asked to describe what they meant, it was because you always have to be right. You're just almost impossible to be friends with. That you won't be friends with someone that won't agree with you. That just cuts to the quick. Because that's not what it means to be Christian at all. Yet because of some of our things that we've done in society, some of the stances that we take, some of the things that we think separate us from the world, some of the things that we do and say actually cause the world not to come to Jesus, actually push the world away. Because Jesus was a, he was, he was just a magnetic person. The church is the body of Christ. It should be a magnetic personality. Yet it seems to have the opposite effect. You know, the first church around, it, it, the first church in the early, early first century, it was so powerful and so dynamic, and people were coming by the thousands. It said that there were even sometimes that up to 3,000 people would be saved. So that God was adding to their number daily. They were a magnetic group. And so I'm like, why were they so magnetic and we're not? What do they have that we didn't have? They have the same spirit of God we had. They have the same, you know. In fact, we've really, we've spent a lot of money and a lot of time to make it comfortable. We have great meeting places. We have great worship. We have great lights. We have, you know, we we do a lot of things. We have visuals. We have microphones. How come they grew so quickly and we struggle so much? And I don't think it's because society's changed. I think it's because we've changed. So how did the secular historians, the people that were outside the church in the early days, how did they record history about what they thought about Christians? Nothing was recorded in the first few uh, decades after Jesus resurrected. There was nothing really recorded that they know about from like 30, 40, 50, 60. Not until about 90 A.D. did they start seeing writings show up that were people talking about Christianity at all. So what did those early historians say? This is one, Suetonius. He, He was a Roman historian. And he said this, Christians are a class of men that are given to a new and wicked superstition. New because it was, it was new, you know, it was, a new, it was a new thing on the scene. It was nothing they had seen before. But why would they call us a wicked superstition? And many, many of the early historians called us an abominable people. We, we did all kinds of things. Why would, they, why would they say all those things? It's because Christianity was so different than any other religion. 
And the reason it was different is because Jesus never wanted it to be a religion at all. But all religions, you know, they just work so hard to try to please God. And here was a God that came down and died for humanity just so that we could be pleasing to him. It was totally opposite. They called it a superstition because it didn't fit in the framework of what religion really is. They called it wicked because of the way that we approach communion. And you would eat the flesh and drink the blood of your Savior. That's why they call it an abomination. They just didn't understand at all. Here's another one, Celsus. He was a Greek philosopher, and he was an opponent to Christians. He didn't like them at all. And he said this, it's just, they worship to an extravagant degree, this man that appeared recently, and they're like frogs holding a symposium around a swamp, debating which, one, which of them is the most sinful. <laughs> I mean, that was his observation. He said they gather together, but sometimes when they gather together, it was just like they were wanting to talk about who was the most sinful. And they didn't get it. They were like, why would they do that? And they didn't understand that we as Christians... What it means to be Christian is that we own our sin, we own our brokenness, because we know without sin and brokenness, we don't need a Savior. We're not like other religions that try to put on airs. We're not like other religions that want people to think that we're perfect. We know we're not. I'm not, you're not, no one is. And so the early Christians, they owned that brokenness. And that was the observation made by this historian. And then the last one I'm going to share is a guy named Lucian. He was an Assyrian-born, and he was a satirist. He, he, was, he, he had a bunch of satire in what he would write, but it had a lot of truth in it, too. And he said, these poor wretches have convinced themselves that they're going to be immortal, that they're going to live for all time. By worshiping that crucified sophist and living under his laws, therefore they despise the things of the world and consider them common property. They receive these doctrines by tradition without any definite evidence, so if any charlatan or trickster comes among them, he quickly acquires wealth by imposing upon these simple folk. That was their observation of Christianity. It's pretty accurate, actually, because in Acts chapter 4, it says that all the Christians gathered together daily, and they were living kind of like in a communal way. They were all living together. And it said that God had given them great grace. And it, they, didn't, they didn't consider any of their possessions their own, but they considered all of their possessions in common. And so this man's writing about what he saw, that all these people were living together, and the people that had something, they were selling it and bringing it all into the apostles, and so that the apostles could distribute it, and it said there was none needy among them. They were just giving away everything. Everybody was taken care of. Why would they do that? It's like they didn't even worry about it. They didn't worry about being taken advantage of. That these tricksters could come in among them and would talk them out of their money or they could be fooled or they could be cheated. And they didn't even worry about it. It's almost like they believed what Jesus said when Jesus said, if someone takes your shirt, give them your coat as well. It's like they took it to heart. They really believed it. They didn't worry about what they were doing you know, cheated out of. Can you imagine? I mean, we have a steady stream of people that come by the church that, you know, they're professional panhandlers and they continually want to get you to give them money and it's hard to know who's real and who's not. And, and many times we give because we just feel like we should. But, you know, many times you get taken advantage of and you really don't want to be, but you are. But this man was saying it was happening all the time to the early church and they didn't even care. 
because they didn't worry about being cheated. The early Christians didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a New Testament. They didn't even have Paul's writings. When this stuff was written, they didn't have any of this stuff. So there wasn't any written creed. There was no solid theology. There was no articles of faith. There was none of that stuff. They just knew Jesus. They knew what he said. They believed him. They'd seen him walk the earth. Or they knew someone that did. And the things that they hung on to were the things that distinguished them from us. This group of early believers actually took Jesus' sayings to heart. Like this one in John 12. Those that love their life in this world are going to lose it. And those that care nothing for their life in this world, they keep it for eternity. I mean, does Jesus really expect us to be like this? It seems so extreme. Almost ridiculous. That we would count our life for nothing. That we would absolutely not worry at all. Around this time, even the popes, you know, Paul, I mean, Peter was the first pope, and when he wrote his epistle, he wrote in there that these Christians were peculiar people. In the fourth pope, St. Clement, in 90 AD, he wrote, they're peculiar people. They were peculiar people. We are peculiar. We're supposed to be peculiar, unusual, odd, different. And not just because you listen to Christian music. And not just because you know how to speak Christianese. You're different because these people were way different. They truly took Jesus' teachings to heart. They truly did not worry if someone came and took advantage of them. The teaching that seemed to stick in their mind most of all was this one. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your life. It's been translated in other translations as give no thought. About your life. I mean did Jesus really mean. Did he really mean that? Give no thought. Well we have to Jesus. You know we have to plan for retirement. And save for the rainy day. We have to you know not get taken advantage of. We don't want our identity stolen. We don't want somebody to empty our bank account. Some fraud. Some you know charlatan out there. Somebody to take advantage. We, Lord you really mean give no thought? And he said that's what I mean. Give no thought. Don't worry about your life. These early Christians did that. You think, well, that's, that seems so simple, but let me, just, let, me just, let me just throw something out. Do you know that worry and faith cannot coexist? And do you know the only way to get rid of worry is stepping into 100% faith? Now, I want you to think about this. If the church just got rid of worry the faith level would go through the roof. If we just got rid of worry, the faith level would go through the roof. Now, we know that God co-labors with everything he does on the earth. The only thing that God did not do with man was creation. That's it. Every other miracle you see in the Bible, every other thing that God did on the earth, even Moses holding up the staff to part the Red Sea, there was man that took a part in whatever he told him to do. Just, just do your part. You know, he raised Lazarus from the dead, moved the stone. Whenever he made water into wine, fill the pots. There was man always participates with God's miraculous. And it's always our end that has to be fulfilled. So if we don't have faith and we're full of worry, you remember Jesus going into his hometown? He was healing people all over the place. 
Everywhere he went, he was, he was healed. It said that he healed all that came to him, all the demon-possessed, all the sick. Everyone was healed everywhere he went. He goes into Nazareth. He goes into his own hometown, and it said he could not do any great work there because of their lack of faith. Why? They were thinking about, well, isn't this Jesus, the carpenter's son? Isn't this guy's brothers and sisters here, his mom and dad? We know all these people. He can't be anybody great. They begin to allow their mind to be kind of split about what they believed about Jesus. Now, did you hear that? Jesus could not. It wasn't that he would not. He could not. Why could he not? Because every miracle Jesus does participates with man. And when man's not full of faith, he cannot. Is the first century so the church was so powerful because they had worry dealt with? Was the first century church so powerful in faith because they could dare to believe that their lives here were not as important as their life there? That they lived in such a way that faith in God and what he, he's going to take care of it. We're not going to worry about it. Can you imagine not worrying? Really, do this, just, just do the exercise. Can you imagine not worrying about anything? Nothing. What would you feel like? I mean, it'd be kind of light, wouldn't it? No, I mean nothing. Even now, you worrying about it not being possible. It's, it's possible. <laughs> it's possible. They proved it. Don't worry about anything, about the economy. I mean, you know, aren't we supposed to worry if the stock market tanks and our 401k goes to nothing? We give no thought. Aren't we supposed to be worried about the president and who's never going to run in and what's, you know, what? No, no, don't worry about your life. But, but Lord, aren't we supposed to be worried our own family? What, you know, my, 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 you know, the drug addiction and the different things that happen. And this child, was, they're, they're prodigal and they're running away. He says, give no thought. No worry. Can you dare to believe God 100%? In this Matthew chapter 6 where he said, don't worry, five times he tells us not to worry. Five times. Why? Because he said, if you'll just focus on me and my kingdom and my righteousness, I'm going to take care of all of this stuff. You, you do know there's never been a disease healed because you worried about it. Right? You, you do know there's never been a dollar that was added to your bank account because you were worried. You do know there's been no prodigal, no family mended, no relationship mended because you worried. You know that, right? Then why do we waste our time doing it? When Jesus told us, don't do it. Over and over and over. And it robs us of our faith. And it robs us of a power. We're powerless. I mean, worry's a big deal. We know it's bad for us. Jesus knew it was bad for us. We didn't know these things whenever Jesus... I mean, when Jesus didn't... Jesus knew these things, but the people at the time that this was written, they didn't know these things, that we know them, that worry actually causes disease. It is linked to disease. We know that. 
high blood pressure, heart trouble, migraine headaches, even blindness, thyroid problems, stomach disorders, all linked to worry. It's, it's something we, we need to stop. But how do we stop? Well, Dr. Daniel Amen, he, he's a, a psychiatrist. He's a brilliant guy. He, he wrote a book called Change Your Mind and Change Your World. And he said, for the people that are chronic worriers, he has this 18, 40, and 60 rule. And here, I'm going to share it with you. This is Revelation. You ready? So he says, at 18, you worry about what everybody thinks of you. At 40, you don't care what anybody thinks about you. And by the time you're 60, you realize nobody's been thinking about you at all. So this is, this is the truth of worry. Jesus had better advice. He said, don't worry. And the word worry means there was a, it was a conjunction of two words. It, it means don't have a divided mind. Your mind is divided. The reason you're worried is because you, you, you can't focus on God's miracle because you're too focused on the worst possible thing that can happen. You know, you think about the things you worry about. You immediately go to the darkest place. And the Lord said, if you could just stop having your mind divided, you wouldn't be worried. In fact, he goes on, as he says earlier in that chapter, just three verses before, he said, you know, that the, the, the lamp of the body is your eye. And if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But that word good in the, in the Greek is not good, and it's translated properly in a couple of older versions, but it's the word single. The, the Greek language is so specific, and that word is single. If your eye is single, if your focus in your life is single, you're not going to have worry dominating your life. You're going to be able to see light. The reason so many people can only see darkness, and they're so worried all the time, they're so in fear, is all they can see is darkness because the, their eyes are not single. Their minds are splintered. And if they can get their focus to the light, if they can get their focus to God, it, you, you won't worry. A single focus in your life. I mean, we know these scriptures... In Philippians, that we're to be anxious about nothing. And it's the same word. Don't have your mind splintered about anything. About everything, about, about everything but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, meditate on those things. Just Let's stop right there. The verses go on. But you can stop with whatever things are true. If we could just get to what's true instead of what's not, we could stop worrying. Because if you think about it, the only thing that makes you worry and fearful is those stories that come up in your mind that take you to the darkest place. And when you begin to believe them, your mind is splintered. Did he, prom did he promise you an abundant life? Did he promise to meet your needs according to his riches and glory? Then why would we believe any other story? Philippians 4, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Meditate on what's true. And you'll have peace. You have to pray it through. 
worry should compel us to go to our knees and not so that the situation would change, so that we would change, so that we could have peace in the midst of whatever's going on. Just like in this, whenever Rembrandt painted this painting on the storm of the Sea of Galilee, amazing painting. But it's, it's, you can see so quickly the, the difference between what he was trying to depict here was there was a mind that believed in a miracle, which was in the light, and there was a mind that believed they were all going to die, which was in the darkness. And Jesus was asleep in the boat. And all these guys were flipping out. And it's what Jesus was saying. He was saying that I'm at perfect peace. I'm asleep in the boat because the peace that was inside of Jesus was a result of him knowing the truth. He had told them when they got in the boat, we're going to the other side. And we're going to the other side. And so the storm comes, he's asleep. Why? Because he's focused on truth. His mind and his focus was single. It wasn't splintered. It didn't matter that something came into the equation that made it look like they weren't going to make it. And I can guarantee you, these guys that were on the boat with Jesus, all 12 of them, they were all fishermen, well, not all of them, but most were fishermen. They had been on this lake, and I'll bet you they had dug guys or scooped guys out of this lake that had drowned in storms like this. I'll bet you that they had a legitimate reason to fear. They had seen it kill people. But Jesus rebuked them. Why? Because their minds were splintered. Because their minds were divided. Their focus wasn't on God. It wasn't on Jesus. And they were mad at Jesus for being in peace. And that's what he wants for all of us. You see, when we pray, when we go to pray, when we have worry come in our mind, and we're so, oh, everything's so bad, and we go and we pray... We can pray to the point where we have peace. So many people think, oh, I've got to pray until I change the circumstance. I've got to pray until I stop the storm. That's not what you pray for. You pray until you come to peace. Because it's your worrying that's a problem. The storms are going to happen. But it's learning to sleep through the storm. That's what God's offering every one of us. That's what it means to be Christian. So many people think it means to be Christian that we stand up and say, peace be still. And that could be true. But the truth is, most of the time, it doesn't stop. The storms keep raging. We're to keep praying until we find peace in our heart. And people say, well, it's so complicated. My life is so messed up. There's so many things going wrong and everything's going to go bad. And, and I don't even know what to pray. And that's why in Romans 8 it says... That you, you don't know what to pray sometimes. And so the Spirit of God has to come down and make intercession for you with groans and utters, utterings that you can't even express because your heart is so hurting and your mind is so full of worry and you're just uttering up and you begin to speak in your prayer language. And it says in that, in that Romans 8, it says that you don't know what to pray, but the Spirit of God does. And it comes up through you in groans and utterances. And then you pray according to the will of God. You don't even know what you're praying. But what's beautiful about praying in the Spirit is as you're praying in the Spirit, Paul says your mind is idle. It brings your mind to a place of peace. Your heart begins to pray and you cry out until peace floods your soul. And then you can sleep in the boat. You can sleep in the midst of the storm. Because worry is no longer guiding your life. I mean, what was their focus in the boat? It went to the worst possible thing. Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? We are perishing. This is a fact. 
And he says, whatsoever things are true, focus on those things. Those guys, they focused on this truth. Well, is it true? Was it true that Jesus didn't care? Was it true that they were going to perish? No, they were focused on a lie. Yet they wanted to believe it to be true. And this is what happens when we worry, chronically worry. We get focused on the worst possible thing, and it's not even true. You say, well, my experience tells me it's true. Well, your experience is hogwash. (laughs) Jesus said you're going to have an abundant life. Jesus said we're going to the other side. When Jesus says something in our life, we're to believe him and not the situation that we're in. Because what's the best thing that could happen in this situation? Jesus would stand up and stop the storm. Everything would get calm. Well, I just, you know, you got to think about something when stuff's going on in your life. Let's just think of the best possible scenario. These guys were thinking of the worst one. Let's think of the best one because that's exactly what happened. That was the truth of the situation. So I don't care what you're going through today. I don't care what you're worried about. I don't care how complex or weird or you know, just how many moving parts there are, how many things are happening. I don't care if your life is threatened, your money's threatened, your family's threatened. I don't care what it is you're worrying about. I want you just to stop thinking of the worst possible scenario. And now I want you to think of the best possible scenario. And that is you have a Savior that's in your life, and he's going to stand up, and he's going to calm the storm in your life, and it's all going to be great. And you're going to get exactly where you're supposed to go. Can you dare to believe it? Because that's what he wants all of us to do. One last thing, and it's this. This one about Martha and Mary. And we know the story, Martha and Mary. Jesus is there, and Martha's busy making dinner and washing dishes, whatever she's doing. And and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha comes out and says, Lord, Will you talk to my lazy sister and tell her to come help me? And you would think, and honestly, I kind of agree with Martha because I think there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done here. Jesus is here. There's a lot of people here. We've got to feed them dinner. There's a lot of stuff to think about. And she's sitting there listening to you talk, and I'm in here washing all the dishes. I mean, I kind of feel for her. But Jesus says the most unusual thing to her. He says, Martha, Martha, he said, your mind is split. Your, Your mind is divided about so many things. You're troubled, and there's only one thing. Your your mind needs to be singly focused right now. Now, let me tell you what I don't think this is saying, that when your baby needs their diaper changed, you go into your prayer closet and just read your Bible because (laughs) you don't don't want to deal with it. Or, you know, you're you're having your kids need discipline, and you're just going to go and sing songs of praise. I don't know, but... That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about you just escaping life and sitting at the feet of Jesus. That is not, that's not what this means. Here's what I think he's talking about. And about us being singly focused and how we can take so much worry out of our life. I think what he's saying is be in the now. Be in the moment and recognize what's going on in your life right now. What he was saying to Martha is, Martha, I'm the creator of the universe and I'm in your home. And you're worried about washing dishes. I think he's talking about us being aware of the opportunities of our life. Like when your children want to speak with you or play with you or have a question. And you're too busy doing daddy things to sit down and talk to your child. Not knowing that in a very short amount of time they're going to be gone. 
or your spouse that wants to sit across from you and have a conversation with you, and you're so busy looking on your phone to see what the football game's doing, and your mind is splintered, and you're not in the, you're not in the now. You don't realize that you, you don't realize, you don't know what tomorrow holds. In every opportunity we have to be in the moment, I think that's what Jesus is saying. It causes us not to be those worried and troubled people if we'll just focus on what God's put in front of us. Right now. You don't know what tomorrow holds. And the devil always wants to bring you back to the past. So here's what I want to say. Your best possible scenario, you're going to see a miracle work in your life. You're going to see something you never dreamed of. But your faith needs to increase and your worry and doubt need to decrease down to nothing. So let's stand up. I want to pray over some of you again. Chad had this at the very beginning of his deal. He had said that some of you were going into the holidays and you were not, you know, you didn't, it's not a good time for you. You're not happy about it. And I just want to say to you today that the reason that many of you go into the holidays and it's not a fun time is because you're worried about past experiences. Things in your past have dictated that you're going to have a lousy holiday. Maybe you're afraid about money. I just want to speak these words to you again. Don't worry about it at all. Don't worry about it. And don't allow the past to steal your now. Of course, things can always be better. But you know what? It's going to be great because God's going to be in it and God's going to work a miracle for you. So this is going to be the best Christmas you've ever had. This will be the best Thanksgiving you've ever had. You're going to have plenty of money. You're going to be able to do whatever you need to do. It's because God says that he's come to give you life and give it more abundantly. And he doesn't want you living in brokenness of your past. He doesn't want you grieving over past relationships that are gone. He doesn't want you being afraid of any of that. And so, God, we just today, we release our worries to you. We say, let our minds and our focus be single. Let us see the truth and deal with that and that alone. I thank you that you're a miracle-working God. You've never changed. And, Lord, let our faith rise up to match what you want to do in this place. Let our faith rise up to match what you want to do in our city. We ask, God, that you would be able to do what you want to do. And that's to heal, deliver, and to save people all over the place. And so, God, thank you for your spirit this morning. Thank you for working in our heart. I pray for everyone in this room this morning that's got a worry in their mind right now, God, that you would bring them revelation of truth and of the best possible scenario and that peace would flood their heart right now. Right now. Just receive the peace of God. And ministry team, if you'll come up. Um, If you need prayer this morning for anything, if you're sick in your body, financial difficulties, family problems, I don't care what it is. You have anything, and I just want to invite you to come up and let these lay hands on you, pray with you, agree with you, and help set you free. Thank you for coming this morning. We love you. if, If you... If you need prayer, please come. We'll be here as long as we need to be. If not, be released. Have a great afternoon.